0: Before Dr. Kendall comes and preaches to us, I'm going to read a scripture or two scriptures for you. First scripture, uh, I don't necessarily need to turn to it, it's just a short scripture. First scripture from Exodus chapter 2 verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. He said to the man in the wrong, "'Why do you strike your companion?' He answered, "'Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian?' Then Moses was afraid and thought, "'Surely this thing is known.'" When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. The next portion is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward.
1: Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit, to come upon every mind in order that their perception of what I say will be understood, received as you intend. Upon my tongue, that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent vessel to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Let this be a life-changing time. And may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked the question recently, do you know what it is to do the right thing, but instead of getting rewarded for it, you get in trouble? Well, today I want to ask the question, do you know what it is to do the wrong thing but you thought it was the right thing. And as a result, you had to pay dearly for it. Well, that's just what Bruce read a few moments ago. Moses killed an Egyptian, which was wrong, but thought it was right since it would be his way of showing his fellow Hebrews that he was one of them. His conscience won out. Because he grew up knowing that he was a Hebrew. And he saw his fellow Hebrews as slaves under Pharaoh. And the time came, he could bear it no more. And at the age of 40, decided to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now when I say conscience did it, but is that the only thing? Because it's very interesting. We wouldn't know this had not the writer of the Hebrews told us what he did. That it was not only conscience that motivated Moses to leave the palace. A life of luxury. And then bear the stigma of Jesus Christ. And that's the way the writer put it. Why did Moses do it? Some would say you are a fool. To give up all that luxury? What's in it for you? And Moses would have to say, well, I'll tell you, there is something down the road. And this is where the writer says, he knew what he was doing because it says he was interested in the reward that he would get. Those are the very words. He was looking ahead to his reward. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out that the greatest of men, the greatest of women, though they did valiant things, godly things, and things that were for the honor and glory of God, were in fact motivated partly because of the reward they would get. Other side of the coin, we sometimes don't like to think about that. We think of this person or that person. They are so humble. They are so holy. They are so godly. Oh, what wonderful people they are. Well, if you knew, it's possible there's more to it. They knew there was something in it for them. All right. As a result of killing the Egyptian, Moses would spend the next 40 years of his life on the backside of the Sinai Desert. Forty years, long time. You perhaps have heard me say that the great Charles Spurgeon once said, If I knew I had 25 years left to live, I'd spend 20 of it in preparation. Unusual statement. I would dare say that most people here today, you may not realize it, but you are in preparation. You say, well, I'm I'm ready. I'm I'm doing what I need to do. Okay. We'll talk to somebody else. Then you. (laughs) I'm saying that you are probably in preparation You haven't come to the point in your life for which you have been destined. God has a plan for you and you haven't come to it yet. And all that is happening is part of God's preparation. Here's a principle. You can take this to the bank. The longer the preparation, the greater the reward when it comes. Look at Moses, 40 years on the backside of the desert. That's a long time. And when he was 80 years old, that's when he starts to live. That's where he starts to come into his own. By the way, just hit me. In three months, I'll be 80. (laughs) So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how, well, I wasn't... (laughs) I wasn't angling for you to clap, but uh, but the, I find that very encouraging. <laughs> Wouldn't you, in my age, to think that maybe I haven't even begun? That was the way it was with Moses in any case. The longer the preparation, the greater the reward. The longer the preparation, the greater your usefulness when your time has come. Now, there are two kinds of defining moments. If you've joined us for the first time, we're in a series of talks on the subject defining moments of major Old Testament people. We looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph today, Moses. Well, there are two kinds of defining moments. One is when you make it happen. Joseph did. When he forgave his brothers, that was a decision. Total forgiveness is an act of the will. You do it. You make a choice to let them off the hook. That's what Joseph did. But then there's another kind of defining moment, and that's when it happens to you. And that was Moses. Except that he was going to try to make something happen. But it failed and it backfired on him. Moses paid dearly for what he did. And yet, the wonderful thing is, God was at the bottom of it all. Well now, a typical defining moment, sometimes, is when you come to the crossroads. And suddenly you have to make a choice and there is no turning back. And you had no advanced warning. As if only the Lord would say, get ready. Next Thursday morning, about quarter past ten, uh, something's going to happen. It's not be, it won't be very pleasant. Or take Joseph, as you heard me say. Here was a man who had dreams. And the dreams forecast what it would be like in the future. And you would have thought anybody living with God in his presence and gets visions and gets dreams, well, at least Joseph would have been told, oh, Joseph, next Wednesday, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, get ready, your brothers are going to ambush you, they're going to yank that coat of many colors off your back and sell you to the Ishmaelites. But no, no warning, it just happened. It's an amazing thing someone can be walking as close to God as he's ever walked in his life you're having sweet communion you sense his presence he's talking to you revealing things to you and you would have thought if anything bad is around the corner you would be the one to be told get ready next week middle of the week 1130 in the morning this will happen. God doesn't do that. Like it or not, we all have to face sudden disappointment and a sense that all of a sudden God has turned his back on us. We think, Lord, what have I done? We, we were just in talking, sweet communion, and now this and you feel that you've been betrayed. I talk about breaking the betrayal barrier when you feel God has totally let you down and didn't keep his word. Did you know there was something in common with all the great men and women of history? Every one of them. They broke the betrayal barrier. What was that? Well. You remember in the 20th century, aeronautical science broke the sound barrier when a plane could fly faster than the speed of sound. But there's something more important than that, and that's when you break the betrayal barrier. Every sovereign vessel experiences it. What's a sovereign vessel? That means you're chosen for a specific task. And what happens is that God puts you to the test. It is a hard test. And it comes suddenly. And you feel betrayed, let down by the one you thought was your friend. What happens is, sadly, many, when they feel this betrayal, say, Well, God, thanks a lot. I'm serving you and that's what you do for me. I'm out of here. And there are those who never know what it might have been like had they just waited and said, I don't understand it. But it's okay. I am not going to give up. And it's those people that break the betrayal barrier. Well, defining moments are God's setup for each of us. St. Augustine said that God loves every person as if there were no one else to love. And I would say it's equally true. God has a plan for every man, every woman, as though there were no one else in the world. And I address anybody here, you're here for the first time. Maybe you feel a little strange. You don't know who these people are. You've never been in a service like this. And you don't know why you're here. I can tell you why you're here. God is on your case. And it is a word for you. But it's a word for everyone here. God has a plan. Earmarked. A plan for you. As if there were no one else in the world. Tailor-made. He's on your case. And so, Moses, it turns out that he felt this betrayal. And the next thing you know, he's on the backside of a desert for 40 years. You might like to know that Moses was the most important human being in the Old Testament. The proof of that, John 1 17. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So in one stroke, the whole of the Old Testament, 39 books, Moses, greatest man, New Testament, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Imagine having such stature. But what we're going to look at now is the way God reached this man. Now, as you look at a life of Moses, I could have preached 10 sermons on Moses without any difficulty at all. Take the various things that happened to him. The first defining moment after the one we're talking about is 40 years later. He's on the backside of the desert. He sees a bush on fire. He thinks, well, somebody must have been careless. But he's seen uh, uh, bushes before uh, on fire. But this one, hmm. Odd that bush on fire, fire keeps burning. Bush isn't consumed. He said, "Hmm, we'll see what this is." He walks up. He's going to try to figure it all out. And all of a sudden, God says, "Stop, Moses! Take off your shoes. You are on holy ground." That was the moment when God revealed himself to Moses in a way that Moses would know how real God is. I suppose there are two categories of people here today. Those of you, you profess faith in Christ, you've served him. uh, But it's uh, largely a cerebral thing, uh, intellectual. You know your Bible, you know why you're a Christian. But it's all at a certain level that you would say is natural in a sense. It's not really natural, but it seems natural. Have you ever had a supernatural experience with God? Now, it's not anything you can work up. It's not anything you can hasten. But if God ever shows up in your life in a supernatural way, what I mean by that, it defies a natural explanation. This couldn't be natural. This is different. And that was the burning bush. Didn't consume. Moses would always know how real God is. And this is the thing with the sovereign vessel. They come to a place when God appears in such a way they know. There is a God. The God of the Bible is the true God. And they are so convinced that if the whole world turned their back on God, you wouldn't because you know how real God is. Well, that is something God wants to do for somebody in this place. There are other supernatural events and some very natural. For example, God sends Moses to Pharaoh, and now Pharaoh says, what are you doing here? Moses said, well, I'm here to say, let my people go. Your people? Pharaoh says, who are you? I'm asking you. Let my people go. Why? The Lord said, let my people go. The Lord? I don't know the Lord. And all Moses did when he thought he was going to have a major triumph with the Pharaoh, he still go back now and the Hebrew slaves that spend their days, day and night, making bricks out of straw, now have to find their own straw and make the same amount of bricks, same quota. And that's the thanks Moses got the first time he does what he's told to do. He was a hero yesterday. Today, they're saying, we're worse off than ever, Moses, because you came. This is hard for Moses. And you see, this is part of our preparation. But Moses kept going back until there was the 10th plague. And it was this. God said to Moses, I want you to kill a lamb, take the blood, Sprinkle it on both sides of the doorpost and on the top. And I'm coming through Egypt, the death angel. I will kill every firstborn in Egypt, human being and animal. But those who happen to be inside a building, a hut, a cabin where the blood is on both sides and on the top, when the death angel comes, I will just pass over you. And that became known as the Lord's Passover. It had never been done before. It was unprecedented. And all the people were told, You make sure that where you're living, on the outside, is the blood. So that when the death angel comes, he will pass over you. Little did anybody know that years later, when Jesus would die on the cross, hands outstretched, the blood dripping from his hands, the blood dripping from his forehead, where they pushed the crown of thorns down upon him. In that moment was the same thing. It was a reenactment that the wrath of God was poured out on the whole world, but those who would be joined to the blood who would be unashamed of the blood, those who would rely on the blood would escape the wrath of God and so that God, when he sees that you are clinging to the blood of Jesus, will pass over you and you will go to heaven and not to hell when you die. Well, we could go on with various moments that were defining for Moses. God swore in his wrath that Israel will not enter into Canaan. When Moses interceded uh, for the life of Israel and said, God, please be merciful to them. But what I want to deal today with was the initial defining moment in the life of Moses when having been brought up in the palace of Pharaoh as a Hebrew... Now, here's what happened. When Moses was born, his children, uh, his parents, uh, had him circumcised. This is something, all Hebrew children, they're circumcised. And Moses was circumcised. But because the Pharaoh's edict, he was going to kill all the male children, Moses' parents put him, little baby Moses, in a basket and just let it go on the Nile and one day the Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket and got it and said look it's one of the Hebrew children and as a result they took the little baby home Moses and he's brought up in the house of Pharaoh and he becomes accustomed to luxury he's seen as a prince Yet Moses knew that he was different from other Egyptian boys and became conscious that those slaves were his brothers. And so, as I said, his conscience got to him. And we read about it in the book of Acts chapter 7, where it says in verse 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech in action. And then when he, was seven, uh, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that he esteemed the reproach of Christ. That's the way it was put, even though it was 1,300 years before. It was the same stigma, willing to suffer, but... Moses saw a reward coming. When I look at this verse, it reminds me of something that happened to me. Uh, back in 1968 to 1970, uh, Louise and I were living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I was invited to be the minister of the Lauderdale Manners Baptist Church in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, but I had left university a little bit time left, and I thought, well, I can't spend any more time. I wanted to get out into the ministry of the uh, Word, and, and instead of doing that, uh, I didn't know how to handle money, and I got in debt and couldn't go back into the ministry for years, and uh, finally uh, got out of debt and took this little church, but always felt this guilt that I'd never finished my schooling. And for some months, it was burning on me that I ought to have the courage to give up the church, go back to university, swallow my pride, say, this is what I need. But I thought, I'm now 35 years old. If I do what I know I'll have to do, I'll be 40 years old before I get back into the ministry. And I thought... Should I do it? I've got 30 years left. If you consider 65, retirement age, I was 35. Or I can wait till I'm 40, and then I'll have 25 years left. I thought, I don't know. It seems right if I got the preparation. And then I thought, why do I want to go to seminary? Uh, I know the gospel. I know theology. I am learned in these things, and why do I want to go now to a seminary? What are they going to teach me? And then the worst thing of all, I'll be 40 years old. I didn't know whether I wanted to do it. One day, in May 1970, I was in a church in Denver, Colorado, high up in the gallery, and it was burning on me more than ever. I need to go back To university, and not worry that I'll be 40 years old when I finally finish. I did something today, uh, that day, that I honestly don't recommend. Uh, I've done this a few times. You can count it on one hand when God has spoken to me in this way. I did something, I would just say, boys and girls, don't do this at home. I had my little New Testament. I said, Lord, if you really want me to go back to university and learn these things that I don't need and then wait till I'm 40 years old, I want you to give me a verse. I don't want you to give me a verse that just says, thus saith the Lord, I'm with you. I want it to be objectively plain and clear so that I'll never doubt. My heart began to pound and I knew, it was one of those times, I knew in a second before I was going to get it. I opened it and my eyes fell on these words. It was Acts 7, 22. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, when he was 40 years old, <laughs> he decided to visit his brethren. I closed my Bible. <laughs> I said to Louise, "We're resigning our church. We never look back. It led to my education eventually coming to England the reason I'm here today Caution. Don't try this very many times. (laughs) Did you hear about the lady who said, I want to hear from God. Lord, speak to me. She opened her Bible. It said, Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) She closed it. No, Lord, please give me one. She opened it again. It says, go and do thou likewise. (laughs) Please, Lord, one more time, open it. What thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> I'm saying, be very guarded with this. It happened to me that time, and I never looked back. Well, now, one way God accomplishes his will in us is when we are locked into a situation. So that there's no turning back possible. Moses grew up knowing he was a Hebrew, rescued as a baby. He had a conscience he couldn't bear knowing that his people were suffering. And so at the age of 40, he pays a visit thinking that they're going to say, Oh, look, here comes our hero. So Moses, to prove he's on their side, Kills an Egyptian. And then the next day. When Moses thinks they're going to carry him on their shoulders. He says. They said to him. Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses thought. Uh oh. This is known. That. Was his defining moment. No longer. Could he go back to the palace. But neither. Could he visit his Hebrews? They didn't want him. He had no place to go, cut off from where he was, no future. Anybody here like that? Cut off from your past, nothing ahead. What is Moses to do? He goes to the desert, on the backside of the desert. He knew he couldn't return to the palace. Neither could he hang around with the Israelites. Things would never be the same again. Listen to these verses. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 7. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Listen to this word. Job chapter 3 23. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Lamentations 2.17 The Lord has done what he planned. He fulfilled his word, which he decreed long time ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. The loneliness... When you've messed up, thinking you did the right thing, but it was the wrong thing. You can't go back. You can't go where you were going to go. Loneliness. But God was at the bottom of it all. Well, those next 40 years, they weren't all bad. He found a wife, became like family to a man by the name of Jethro. They would culminate in the burning bush 40 years later. And those would be hard, nostalgic years. I look back at my era, lasted four years, selling vacuum cleaners door to door. I told you about it a week or two ago. It was so humbling, humiliating. It was horrible. But I needed those years. Those are the years I learned how to handle money. And I got out of debt. Never went back into debt again. I learned how to deal with people. It taught me human relationships. I could go on and on. The value of those years. They're not fun. But we all need this. It's indescribable. You don't get it at seminary. You don't get it in university. And you may be in it now. It's called University of the Holy Ghost. When you learn things you needed to learn, but they're not very pleasant. Well, God has a way of doing this with his people. There was no turning back for Joseph once he was sold by the Ishmaelites. Couldn't go back to Canaan now. No way. No turning back for the Israelites once they were set free after the Passover because they crossed the Red Sea. No way going back. And sometimes a Christian feels the same way. They think it all started so well. God was so real. I was baptized. My friends laughed at me. And it was good. And now you're in a difficulty and the Lord's presence is not real. This is what happened to the Christian Jews that the epistle to the Hebrews was written to. They were baptized. They had gone so far with the Lord. They knew his presence. They knew his power. But then one day they hit a wall. God's not there. Their friends are still laughing, no vindication. And they begin to say, what's the use? What's the use? Anybody here like that? You profess faith in Christ. You were baptized. You felt the Lord. He moved in your life. But for some reason, suddenly, he's hiding his face. And you think, I'm not sure I did the right thing after all. That's the way these Hebrew Christians were. Listen to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 35. He says to them, I know you're discouraged, but remember those early days after you were illuminated, you stood your ground in a great contest of suffering, you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew in yourselves you had a better and lasting possession. So he says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. There it is, the motivation. God uses this to get our attention and to keep us going. Because in one day, if you don't give up, you won't be sorry. I'm saying to you now, are you torn between wanting to go forward and yet you think, I want to go back. You don't know which way to go. You want to go forward, but then you think... I'm not sure I can give up. I want to go back. And then one day God fixes it so you can't go back. It's too late. And that's where they were. And so the writer says, don't give up now. What will those people think when they first laughed at you? They'll say, ah, now you know you were wrong, don't you? Moses said this to God himself when God was going to destroy the nation and start out with a new people, Moses said, what will they think in Egypt? You've got to remember, people are watching you. And so the writer now says, don't give up. You see, there are two ways we might experience no turning back. One is when God does it for us, as when Moses couldn't go back. The other is when we resolve in our hearts that there will be No turning back. And as for Moses, he made a commitment. We're told he chose, it's a decision, to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he knew If he didn't give up, down the road was a reward and it would be worth waiting for. I recall back in World War II, most of you weren't around, but in America we could hear the recording. When Winston Churchill, in England's darkest hour, while the bombs were coming in to London every night, Churchill got on the air and said, we will never, 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 never give up. That's what I'm saying to anybody here. God has you in a place. There is no turning back. No turning back. But God knows how to get our attention and keep us encouraged. He appealed to Abraham and said, leave your country, go to the place I tell you. And then God added, I will make your name great. Abraham was motivated. God has a way of getting our attention. And so what will it be for you? Will you be willing to resolve today? That there will be no turning back. But You see, what Moses wanted was the prize. The prize. Listen to Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Do you have any idea what's been going on in the last hour here in London? The marathon. It's the mother of marathons. I don't know if you noticed that Collins just came in late. He was running the marathon today. (laughs) Is that right? You lazy thing. (laughs) Now you're in such good shape you don't need the marathon. Actually, you know what Paul went on to say? He said, everyone who competes, they go into strict training. By the way, my trainer is here today, Bogdan. He works with me twice a week. The reason I'm able to travel around the world, I go into strict training. And I tell you, I leave there, I can hardly walk home. (laughs) They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Whoever wins the marathon today, there will only be one, only one. His picture will be on the Times front page tomorrow, whoever wins. But you know what? There's a big difference between the race in the marathon and the race we're in. The difference is we all get a prize. You know why? We're not competing with each other. All we're doing is keeping our eyes on Jesus and Lo and behold, even he was motivated for the fact of joy set before him. We all need to know that there's something down the road that will make it so sweet. Do not give up your confidence. It has great recompense of reward. And so resolve today because you're loved with an everlasting love and you are in a win win situation either way god is at the bottom of it all by the way 20 minutes ago i mentioned about the blood of jesus remember his Hands outstretched, the blood dripping from his forehead. That was the fulfillment of Passover. The blood on both sides of the door and on the top. Those who relied on the blood were saved. Question. Have you ever relied on the blood of Jesus? Pinned your hope, your whole destiny... Whether you go to heaven or hell on the blood. Or have you said, I'm living a good life. I will be judged because I've done my best. You, my friend, with respect, are being very foolish. There's only one way to be sure that you will go to heaven when you die. And that's when you nail your colors to the mast and pin all your hopes On the blood that Jesus shed. If you haven't come to that point, I want you to pray this prayer right now. Don't need to say it out loud. You can even keep your eyes open. But in your heart, God will be listening to you. Just say this Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart as best as I know how. I give you my life. That's the prayer.